0: So you worked on the book for five years? Is that right with Paul?
1: Well, the, I would say the book was um, an unspoken seed uh, five years prior to its publication. What actually happened was Paul and I had fun. We were supposed to be, you know, serving our college by going to these committee meetings and instead we would pass notes like we were kids in school. He would ask questions about perceptual processes, um, and I would—I just kept saying yes and giving Paul answers. And you know how sometimes synchronicities are are beautiful things. At that exact moment in time, um, Chapman offered its first co-teaching award, and. When the email arrived, I read it and I thought, damn, somebody's been listening in on our (laughs) conversations. And so we drafted a proposal, which was quite a bit of work. You have to design, you collapse two courses into one, and you have to design the uh, background literature, the syllabi, you know, put forth a proposed course Well, we... We did that, and we won. We were the first ever co-teaching award at Chapman University. Oh, wow. And we called the course uh, Cinema and the Brain, and, and we taught together, which you've met Paul, so that was hard for me to get a word in edgewise, but we learned how to just play off of each other, and the students loved it. It was a huge success. Maybe because Paul showed a lot of movie clips and so there wasn't a lot of lecture to listen to. But uh, despite themselves, they picked up quite a bit of um, basic kind of 101 neuroscience. So the parts of the brain that are involved when you are seeing or listening and the parts of the brain that interact when you have an emotional response, a fear response or Or a humorous response, and how the audience is constantly engaged if the writer or the film switches it up at a fast enough pace. Our brains are uh, pretty quick instruments to play, and the real gift of a good movie is that it uses that knowledge of when to give the viewer that emotional pause when they when they've had too much to process and how to give that downtime at, at the same time keeping them actively engaged so our first class was such a hit that despite kind of upsetting the administration a little bit we were granted a uh, second viewing, or another time to do it, and over the process of that, Paul is uh, part of the United Film Visual Artists, I believe that's the acronym, and he was going to host, Chapman was going to host their annual conference, and so Paul and I were invited to do what we were doing in front of the classes for one of their panels. So during that presentation uh, we, a book editor, someone from the publishing houses was there and wanted us to sign to produce the book. So it kind of dovetailed from what we were doing mostly having fun is what we've always done. We, Paul, neither Paul or I take anything very seriously uh, but the experience was um, I think eye-opening, not just for me, but for you know the two or three dozen students who actually went through the class. Certainly, for um, administrative department-wise, to see how blended two very distinct fields actually are. So that was that was what started the book.
0: You talked about switching up cognitive processes. Are there certain movies that seem to do that? Throughout the two hour span, that you're really going from one emotion to the next, back and forth?
1: Sure. There are lots of movies that fast forward your emotions. Um, Most of your uh, Jack Reacher kind of, uh, you know, solve the crime, stay out of danger, are moving at a very quick pace. Those movies tend not to involve much uh, humor or much regret. Those movies tend to be based on fear and anticipation so they keep kind of a higher heart rate going while you're watching. The movies that are more uh, psychological or involve the aspect of uh, reflection, thinking about your memories. So I'm gonna uh, 500 days or 51st dates, those kinds of movies that uh, display people portray people that have lost memory or not forming memories properly are very engaging, real successful in the box office. Uh, more engaging for an audience who may not be, you know, a hero or a daredevil or that kind of a person, maybe can watch those but have a lingering appreciation for someone whose mind is not working exactly the way theirs is. So lots of movies come at different cognitive processes and in forming a story around not working cognitive processes, some kind of brain injury that has changed that person, you get a lot of fascination from the viewer's perspective because everybody relates to forgetting at some time or another. Everybody's had a forgetful experience. What is it like to not be able to form a memory so that you live in a forgotten state? Those are some interesting psychological brain processes that have been presented and done well in the theaters. One of the aspects that we point out in science of screenwriting is how skilled uh, screenwriters build in the contrast of emotions. So there's been uh, some studies done and researchers have used eye trackers in um, audiences such that they can tell where the audience's eyes are focused on the screen during which kinds of movies. And because we can measure things like how long the eyes stay on the character and how often the eyes move off the character, we can translate those eye movements into attentional factors. And we now understand that timing is critical. So a viewer can take about three minutes of tension of that kind of uh, bond fighting with the shark or whatever that is and then there needs to be a break or the eyes are going to saccade you can't take too much tension so we need a relief so if you'll notice in the bond movies it's really brief it's about a minute and a half where it's death murder kill kind of you know tension And then there's a segue whether that means that there's a a further away shot, a long distance shot or a scan to the boat that's coming to the rescue or whatever interruption in order to give the nerves, the, the brain processes that are building tension in that watcher a break and it It has to be at least, you know, a a 30, 60, 90 second break, so the scan away before you can re-engage in a tight emotional situation. So we know those processes are happening in daily life and that when people go to a movie, they anticipate experiencing deeper tension, more dramatic exchanges. But in order to maintain their attention, you still have to give those interactive breaks so that there's a release and then a re-engagement in the tension and conflict.
0: In the science of screenwriting, what's your favorite chapter or maybe a chapter that was most challenging that you felt very proud of?
1: I, I think my favorite chapter is chapter one because uh, we got to give kind of the overview of the dance we were going to try to do for the uh, potential screenwriter or anyone really who's interested in why movies are so fascinating, why human beings will go into a dark place with dozens of total strangers and sit quietly for hours. And that behavior alone is, you know, worth a good thorough psychological investigation. So in chapter one, I think we had a lot of fun building up what we were going to do in the rest of the book. But I like the uh, chapter that's on the uh, creative stages of the screenwriter. Uh, That's a chapter that involved quite a bit of research in studying how the creative process itself plays out in, in any artist, in any creative act, but in screenwriting, the importance of uh, the story itself. So you had asked Paul a question about um, yes or no. If you focus on the audience, would that make your, your screenplay a success? My answer would be a flat-out no, flat-out no. You, you must have the story. The story is what will make your screen play a success. The ability to pace your story, to weave your story, to tell your story in a way that's respectful, even playful with the human brain that's going to be processing it, that will give your story the the attraction and the further success. But without the story, You can play people all you want. It's you know if you don't have something to tell them, there there's no reason to engage. And in the chapter on the creative processes, the stages of creativity, I got to do quite a bit of um, research on what we know about creativity. Creativity is considered the ultimate cognitive process. So we do all these things in our brains, right? We, we pay attention. We perceive all of our different sensory activities happen in the brain. So you don't see with your eyes. You see with your occipital lobe. You don't hear with your ears. You hear with your auditory cortex. So all of these amazing things happen in the brain, but they happen in parallel processing simultaneously so you're hearing and seeing while you're thinking about what you're hearing and seeing while you're remembering what you've seen and heard while you're predicting what may come so our brains are these beautiful orchestrations of simultaneous processes and creativity emerges from that unique, totally individual, no two brains do anything exactly alike. So I think that's my favorite chapter. It was a lot of fun to explore what helps creativity, what hinders creativity, and what the screenwriter can use to get over slumps, you know, use to break through blocks. So that was my favorite, I think.
0: Thinking of your favorite films, are you able to look at it from another perspective and see why, see the science behind why you like certain films?
1: Sometimes, rarely. I'm a devotee of stories. I love going to movies and I don't pretend to be a scientist. I'm just a movie watcher in there. there are, I can train myself, you know, to take, like Paul does, take clips, sequences, and then I can take apart pieces of movie but if I'm given an opportunity to be told a story I take it. Storytelling is uh, its the human gift. There are as far as we know no other uh, vertebrate animals that engage in fantasy, that engage in storytelling. It makes us uniquely human. and. From my perspective, it's this um, connection to language, which as I was saying is begun before birth. We, We listen in utero for that voice that is closest to us. So the person carrying us is the most important voice that we hear. And I think that, I don't know, it's magic to me and I'm a scientist, I'm all about data but it is magic to me that we uh, communicate at all, that we get each other even you know, vaguely and that we do it so effortlessly and so successfully. Uh, the gift of language, the gift of storytelling um, is what I've taught for decades. And it's still just a magical mystery tour. It's amazing how we don't run out of language. We don't run out of stories. Yeah, you get Boy Meets Girl or you know these kinds of repetitive plots but each and every movie about Boy Meets Girl captures us as an audience holds us we are as if we've never seen the whole scenario before that's a good movie right the the ones that don't make it are the ones that have not added enough of that individual creativity to the storytelling
0: so even language if it's not our our native language we can still relate you know how people love seeing foreign films mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is, is there something different about that or
1: That's a great question, and I love talking about when, so as if you were deaf, as if you did not have auditory processing, and so you were following along closed caption, you're reading the subtitles, you still get all the emotion that's portrayed visually. But there's a lot of data that suggests the sound, uh, not just the language, but including the language, but the background music, the tension sounds, the relaxing sounds, the auditory cues that a screenwriter adds to their film to create that emotional mood. When those are missing, the movie is much more uh, intellectual process and much less of a you know full-body emotional, I'm in this story. So watching foreign films takes a different mindset. When you go to watch a foreign film and you know you're going to be watching the, the subtitles to get the dialogue, if you're a hearing person and you can still have the background cues to what's going on, it's much more successful. For people who have auditory disabilities, it's movie watching is an entirely different experience
0: what do you think can be helpful for screenwriters
1: when they look at the science behind writing and story I think it's profoundly helpful for a screenwriter to recognize the physiological processes that their audience is experiencing to have at least a minimal understanding of the visual and the auditory information is being received the same by everybody's eyes and ears work the same way. But once that information is transduced into neural impulses in the brain, that is where the screenwriter needs to understand that every person in there is working from a different schema, an organized set of their experiences, building up their own individual expectations. Here is where the screenwriter can capitalize on general experiences. So in this day and age, almost everybody has seen a movie or has watched video clips. So there's a certain amount of experience that exists at a general level. What can they do in their screenwriting to make that unique, to make that individual, to make their story stand out from the expected? So I think understanding the interleaving of memory and language and emotions with the physical processes, so what the audience is seeing or hearing is key to the way we uh, dedicate our book to the success of future storytellers. I think storytelling will take on really fascinating new perspectives when screenwriters begin to consider the brain processes of the audience that they are telling the story to.